presented by BlackRock. Good morning, Playbookers. I'm Raghu Manavalan. It's Thursday. The race for top dem on the House Oversight Committee heats up, plus an investigation into no labels. It's your Politico Playbook Daily Briefing. The battle to become President Joe Biden's top defender on Capitol Hill is on, with Republicans salivating as they sharpen their investigative knives for Biden, the race to succeed outgoing Representative Carolyn Maloney as the top dem on the House Oversight Committee is raging at a fever pitch. Here's the question, who will it be? While Representative Stephen Lynch is technically next in line in seniority and is running for the job, most Democrats think the jockeying for the position is down to two outspoken, well-known, and well-respected bulls who've thrown their hats into the ring, Jerry Connolly and Jamie Raskin, and the race has become a bit contentious. You can catch the breakdown of each of their cases in today's playbook, but here's why the race is worth paying attention to. With Biden expected to mount a re-election campaign in the coming months, House Republicans will aim to use their majority to control the narrative and populate the media with stories about myriad investigations into the administration, all aimed at causing maximum damage to the president's 2024 hopes. Just think way back when, when chairs Daryl Issa, Jason Chaffetz, and later Trey Gowdy leveraged their positions to probe the IRS's treatment of Tea Party groups, the 2012 terrorist attack at the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya, and Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. The next oversight ranker will be taking on not only incoming chair James Comer, but also people like Jim Jordan, who will lead any impeachment efforts from his perch atop the judiciary panel. The position is all the more important because of some private concerns about Representative Jerry Nadler leading the later Committee for Democrats. While the caucus respects Nadler's work during the Trump administration, and thus far, no one is expected to challenge him, some in the party worry that the New York Democrats' moment has passed, and whisper that the party needs a fresh and lively counter to Republicans. Democrats say they're in a strong position to defend Biden on the Hill, regardless of the outcome. It's just a question of who gets the job. Hey, this is Playbook Deputy Editor Zach Stanton. I'm being joined today by Daniel Lippman, longtime friend of Playbook and friend of the pod. He is joining us to discuss his article that dropped on Wednesday afternoon about no labels. Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having me, Zach. So let's get right into it. Uh, you know, you have a pretty sweeping piece that looks at uh, all sorts of allegations about no labels itself. But why don't we start with actually just a brief overview. Like, what is no labels? Why do people in D.C. care about it? So no labels was started in 2010 by a person named Nancy Jacobson, uh, who is uh, a legendary you know, Democratic fundraiser, uh, but is also married to the Clinton pollster or former Clinton pollster Mark Penn. Uh, and it was kind of viewed as a way to bridge the gap between the two parties. Uh, and they have a donor base of a lot of wealthy Americans who are tired of, you know, the partisan divides and, you know, they want to get things done in the country. And so they, uh, you know, this they have this new project that they're working on called the 2024 Unity Ticket. Uh, and they call it an insurance policy so that if any candidate is too extreme, you know, if, if both candidates are too extreme, then uh, they would mount a third party candidate. And what you found uh, quite interestingly is that sort of behind the scenes, uh, although they've put on a sort of a smiling face as any organization does, 
behind the scenes, there's a lot of turmoil uh, inside No Labels. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, so I spent the last uh, couple months talking to former employees of No Labels and other people familiar with the organization uh, and found that, you know, there's a lot of employee complaints about the leadership. Uh, you know, one former aide called it a toxic culture. Uh, you know, there's intense staff turnover uh, and a number of allegations about how uh, they don't like, they don't think the management has done a good job at, you know, having an inclusive atmosphere. Uh, a number of people said that it's tough for minority and female staffers to work there. Uh, you know, they said that, you know, at least, or I found that at least three ex-aides have sought money from the organization after uh, their termination from the group in the last two years, which is kind of a striking number when you consider the fact this is a pretty small organization, numbering around 20 people. Uh, and, you know, they have this extreme staff turnover, which leads to uh, make it very hard to execute on projects. Kind of everyone rowing in the same boat is difficult when everyone is sniping at each other in the pages of Politico. Totally. You know, there are so many great anecdotes in this piece. One that jumped out to me when I read it earlier today was talking about the sort of round-the-clock pace that is expected of employees, even the most fairly poorly paid employees. You know, there's there's one uh, who speaks with you who I think does something like 100 hours a week and gets paid $40,000 a year, I want to say. Yeah. Um, you have one instance where uh, there's a Saturday morning earlier <laughs> this year in 2022, uh, during which Nancy Jacobson sent 65 emails to staffers before 9 a.m. Is that right? Yeah, that that was a pretty intense day for those uh, two former <laughs> employees who uh, talked to me. And so I think they, it's sometimes not even just all the requests. Everyone has to work hard in Washington, uh, but it's the nature of them and the uh, kind of feeling like it's a grind when they actually, their whole goal is to, have more bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, yet that has only gotten much worse since their founding. Uh, and that's not to say that they're at blank, you know, they're at fault. But a lot of people who had worked for them thought that they were buying into something that didn't turn out to be the case. And so, uh, you know, they get odd requests. One of the, my favorite one was, uh, you know, they were, ch you know, ch said that they should change their employer name listed on their LinkedIn profiles to America or political organization <laughs> to throw off the scent of a journalist, not myself, trying to locate them uh, this summer. And so, you know, Nancy Jacobson, who's the you know founder and president, she uh, after I asked No Labels about it, she changed her LinkedIn back to No Labels. Uh, and so... <laughs> Uh, and there are these extended kind of instances where they emailed all of their you know, state volunteers, Dennis Blair, who's the uh, an admiral, uh, former admiral, and, you know, who used to be the head of director of national intelligence. He emailed them uh, maybe a month ago saying, hey, uh, you know, Daniel Lipman is working on this big piece. Please email him. Uh, telling uh, him how great No Labels is and, you know, these employee complaints are bogus. And so I got a blizzard of emails one night. Uh, and I think it's over the course of two, you know, a couple of days, it was several dozen. Uh, and they all said the same things, which is, you know, uh, you, you don't see this that often when you become part of the story a little bit. You know, of course, we had to add that in. 
Um, and I thought the most, you know, one of the craziest anecdotes was about how uh, two females, former staffers, complained that they, uh, you know, they were called management telling them to dress more modestly, more conservatively after a female colleague of theirs got improperly touched by a male member of Congress uh, at a no labels event. And so, uh, and they thought that was victim blaming. And so, and that was in late 2019. This is not the 1950s anymore. Right, right. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me about this piece uh, is that, you know, Washington, D.C. very frequently has this reputation for sort of these hard charging organizations where people are expected to work sort of round the clock hours, oftentimes for for not as much pay as they would get at a fair market rate uh, and oftentimes in, in somewhat uh, abusive environments. Uh, and it seems like there is a broader cultural change happening, and that's really coming to bear now in Washington, D.C., where many of these organizations are having to reckon with uh, changing expectations and, and changing understandings of like what is permissible and what is not. Uh, and I'm sure that that's something you're seeing beyond just no labels, uh, seeing throughout the district. Uh, do you have a sense of, of how that's how that's being felt, like what the ramifications are here in D.C.? That's a great question. And I think we all observe it in the various workplaces uh, we see uh, and we're a part of. Uh, and I think the Me Too movement plus Black Lives Matter and you know the killing of George Floyd, uh, those made companies across America and even the world and organizations much more aware of you know racism and sexism uh, in their organizations uh, and know you know they have both employees that they have to keep happy but also clients customers donors for nonprofits uh, and they, you know they don't want to be caught on the wrong side of that you saw that in Disney where they were they got hit from all sides in Florida. Uh, they were, you know, they didn't act, uh, you know, swiftly enough to oppose that, uh, you know, gay bill uh, by Ron DeSantis, the sexual orientation bill. Uh, but then mm -hmm. they course corrected and then they got hit again by uh, conservatives and by DeSantis. Uh, and then, you know, they lost, you know, some of their tax benefits or, or in jeopardy of that. And so uh, at a place like uh, No Labels, you know, they fought really hard against this story. You know, they had a, you know, a top lawyer, a guy at uh, Winston Strong, the co-executive chairman, corresponding with us, because I think they, you know, for a donor, for their donor base, which is a moderate uh, donor, you know, wealthy donors across the country, uh, they did not want to be seen as not hospitable to female employees, to uh, black and minority uh, staffers. Uh, because that could really hurt their fundraising uh, abilities. And what's interesting about Nancy Jacobson is that she has not taken a salary uh, until this year. Um, and she just recently started taking one uh, at the beginning of this year. But uh, at the same time, no labels for the last few years, they've given various contracts to companies that are partly uh, owned by her husband's firm, Stagwell, uh, you know, they mm. gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to Targeted Victory, which is a top uh, communications and PR firm in town uh, for their work as a revenue processor. According to their 990s, they gave money to uh, Harris, uh, you know, Telecom, which is, I think, related to the Harris poll. Uh, and now, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for 
media as their 990, the IRS form that nonprofits have to give. And so I think the, you know, those types of things can hurt their image uh, of not being in it for themselves. You know, I think no one I talk to questions Nancy Jacobson's ability to raise money, her dedication to the cause. She works like a dog uh, at no labels. Uh, but they kind of question some of the leadership decisions and her management style at the organization because, you know, I talked to you know, 14 former employees and, you know, they just kept, kept, kept coming out of the woodwork. I've gotten a bunch of emails from people who uh, also worked at the organization uh, who I wish I had talked to uh, today after the story ran, um, just kind of pouring their hearts out and, you know, wanting to speak out, wanting to improve the organization um, and, you know, having people understand what, uh, you know, the money that they give to an organization and whether that is, uh, whether it uh, treats their employees well or not. Well, it's a great piece. I urge everyone to check it out. Daniel Lippman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Zach. Like Dane Washington, so an excerpt from Politico's Caitlin Emma on her story about the next government funding bill as bipartisan negotiations on a sprawling year-end package to fund the government remain mired in gridlock. Democrats have a new negotiation plan, publicly releasing their own partisan proposal on Monday. Democratic appropriators want that plan, which they've been drafting behind the scenes while bipartisan negotiations flounder to come up for a vote in the House and Senate next week. That's according to a Senate Democratic aide, despite its certain failure in the upper chamber. Both sides are refusing to budge in talks over government funding, with almost no progress made since last week. All right, for more news on what's breaking in D.C. right now, subscribe to the Playbook newsletter. That's at politico.com slash playbook. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Raghun Munavalan. Have a good Thursday. We'll see you first thing tomorrow morning. All across the country, people are working hard for their financial freedom. So BlackRock is hard at work, supporting communities, investing $20 billion in U.S. roads, bridges, and transportation on behalf of their clients. From the plains to the coast, BlackRock helps Americans invest for their future and helps communities thrive. BlackRock, invested in the future of Americans. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal, as of May 13th, 2022. Visit blackrock.com slash invested.